So the scenario I'm about to describe has not happened to me once in my lifetime. It's actually happened twice. I have no idea why. It's just the way it's been. So I'm standing in a Christ the King bathroom. That's all I'm going to say about that. Don't let your brain go too far, okay? And ladies, I don't know how it works in your bathroom, but in a men's bathroom, there's a rule, okay? It's quiet. There's no talking, all right? You don't speak to somebody else because of what's going on. So it is quiet as it should be. And yet, as I stand in the bathroom, I am keenly aware that there's a person in the stall next to me. And it's enough about that. And as I'm standing there in an environment that's supposed to be quiet, I hear an awkward word. Hello. To which I respond, hello. A moment passes, more awkward words come. How are you doing? I'm fine. You, right? I should have stopped right there. Another moment passes by, which seems like an eternity, and then finally I hear from the stall these words. Can you hold on just a second? There's another guy in the bathroom that thinks I'm talking to him. (laughs) On his phone. You got that right? Okay. It's awkward. Awkward. All right. And here was the issue. My conversation with the guy in the stall next to me lacked context, okay? My conversation was not the primary conversation, and that led to confusion and unbelievable embarrassment, okay? So we're doing a series called Out of Context, where we're focusing on a tendency that people have to pull a small section of a conversation between God and His people, often in the form of a single Bible verse, and take it out of context, and randomly, and often haphazardly, just throw it around, or even worse, take that one single scripture and build an entire theology and belief system around it when it's been pulled out of the context. So let me start by saying this, okay? Your whole Bible, from beginning to end, is a conversation between God and people. From the beginning of time, God has revealed himself in this epic conversation so we can learn more about his nature and his character. This might be a shock to you, but the Bible is not about us. The Bible is about God. And having a right view of God can actually teach us a lot about ourselves, but we need to make sure that we've got our priorities straight. Now, can we learn things even though the Bible is about God? Absolutely. Absolutely. We were created in the image of God, so there's so much to learn about ourselves. But we've got to learn those lessons in the light of who God is. So as we learn and read the Bible, it's important that we understand the context into which God is speaking because it helps us be more accurate in understanding what God is saying. So if you'll join me for a second, we're going to go to Bible college, okay? So just stick with me. going to get a little academic here for a little bit. But I want you to know this. When you're studying the Bible, it's important to consider the following contexts, okay? The first one is in the immediate context. Who's talking and who's listening, all right? Who is speaking and who are they speaking Two, so the person who's speaking that part of Scripture, even though they were all superintended by God to write those particular words, they have a story, and their story contributes to the meaning of the words, just like the audience that's listening has a story, and their story contributes to their understanding. You can read all of the books of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul and go, okay, nice information. But if you just understand a little of his context, his story, it gives the words even more meaning knowing what God is saying through him. Because before the Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary in all of world history, he was a hitman that killed Christians for the fun of it. 
that kind of changes the tone, don't you think? All right, so his story has an influence on the words that God superintended him to write. So there's the immediate context. Then there's the language context. What did it actually say in the original language in which it was written? The Bible is, of course, written in Hebrew, Greek, and certain sections in Aramaic. And these original languages have a bearing on the translation of Scripture. Now, the truth is, and I'm thankful for this, right? You don't need to know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic to study your Bible. But if you're going to press into the depths, it's helpful to know that those languages and their grammar and their emotional influence and their structure helps us pull out the specific meaning of the text. And my job, I'm not exactly sure how I do with it, but my job is to take those original concepts and make sure that you understand every single week God's heart in this unbelievable conversation known as the scriptures. Okay, there's another context. It's the grammatical context. How is it actually said. You probably remember back in elementary school, right? You had to take grammar. If you liked it, there's probably something wrong with you, but I mean, it was just one of those things you kind of had to go through. Why did you take grammar? You took grammar because without grammar, language loses meaning, especially in the English language because it's just full of exceptions and metaphors and all different kinds of stuff that goes in there doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So tenses, verb tenses, and adjectives, and adverbs, and the subject of a sentence, and all that stuff, it actually matters. Every sentence in the Bible matters. So we look at it grammatically to make sure that we're getting the true meaning. Then, of course, there's the historical and cultural context. What historical and cultural influences are actually important? So the Bible was written by, in a certain period of history over a certain periods of history, to a certain group of people, to multiple groups of people, carrying both individual and universal truth. So understanding the culture and the history helps us understand how we can apply it in our modern context. So when we were in Israel this past spring, we're walking around the same locations that Jesus walked, and you just begin to look through the lens, the Jewish lens, the Israelite lens, the historical, Near Eastern, Middle Ancient history lens. And you start just connecting pieces from all over the different parts of Scripture going, that makes sense now. Why? Because I'm understanding the historical and the cultural context. When you're walking through the crowded markets, when you're walking on the original stone pathways, it just gives you a picture of how God was revealing himself to those people at that time. It's just so unbelievably rich. Then, of course, there's the theological context. How does that verse that you're talking about fit in with the whole rest of the Bible? Because the Bible is actually one seamless piece, even though it's written by multiple authors at different times, every one of them with the common theme of Jesus. So every verse in Scripture is connected to the verses before it and after it, and their placement within the whole context of Scripture gives us a deeper understanding of the completeness of God's conversation. And it's so unbelievably important. I mean, think about it, right? So if you and I are having a conversation, and you take a single sentence out of that conversation and make it stand on its own, it can completely change the meaning of the sentence. Let me tell you a painful lesson from experience. So a couple years ago, I got to speak at Central Christian Church. It's a great big church in Henderson, Nevada. And as part of my message that day, I was unpacking the story of how Jesus loved children. He just loved children. And how on one occasion, he pulled a child out of the crowd and told everybody in the room, everybody that was there in that situation, that, you know, you need to be like this kid. Not childish, childlike when it comes to your faith. 
They shared the story of how at a different time Jesus rebuked the disciples because they were trying to keep the kids away from him. And I talked about how Jesus loved children and how he wanted to actually have physical contact and touch children and how he saw beauty in their simple faith. And a blogger in Nevada who listened to my message took that one phrase, Jesus loved to touch children, and posted an article claiming that I said and preached that Jesus was a pedophile. She took what I said out of context, and I don't know how you get there, but it ended up in a really, really, really twisted place. So that's what happens in any conversation when we select a single statement and we allow it to stand on its own. There's a word for that in Bible study. It's called proof texting, okay? Let me give you a nice fancy definition, all right? Proof texting is the method by which a person appeals to a biblical text to prove or justify a theological position without regard for the context of the passage that they're citing, okay? Let me try to put that in English, all right? So when a person takes a single verse and they use it to build an entire belief system about God without thinking about the whole rest of the conversation or what the Bible has to say, they're proof texting and it's dangerous. Let me give you a very lame but hopefully somewhat understandable example of proof texting. The Bible says, you can look it up for yourself, Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then away he went away and he hanged himself. The Bible also says, go and do likewise. The Bible also says, Jesus said, whatever you're about to do, do quickly. The Bible says all three of those things. I can quote those scriptures to you. And if you take them and build a theology about them, you're going to go home tonight with an incorrect conclusion and say, this was Grant's point. The Bible told me to commit suicide now. Right? Now, we all know that's not what the Bible's saying. But when we force meaning out of a verse without knowing the context, we often lose the beauty of the meaning that God intended And he gave scripture to you as a gift. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of the most classic verses that unfortunately have been taken out of context. Pastor Mike started us off last week. Did a pretty good job for a worship guy, I thought, you know. You take his his guitar away from him and the boy steps up. That's pretty amazing. It's fantastic, right? He started off with this classic verse. Do not judge or you yourself will be judged. And he taught us from scripture. That verse does not mean we are not to use discernment. That verse does not mean we can walk away with an attitude of you do your thing and I do my thing and I don't judge you and you don't judge me. Instead, it called us to live as a community that actually work really, really hard in order to produce this beautiful thing called holiness. That verse means we're to lovingly use discernment. We're supposed to call each other out with love and care and pursue holiness individually and as a community. So let's check out another verse, a beautiful verse, that's often used out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11. Ready? Here it comes. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Okay? You've probably seen that verse on a plaque or a coffee mug or a piece of Christian wall art. I mean, it is famous. It's all over the place. Walk into the Christian bookstore, it's everywhere, all over the walls, right? And it's a promise. 
And people throw this verse out under all different kinds of circumstances, right? Sometimes it's thrown out when they're, they're happy about their new car. God had a plan for me, right? Or their new relationship. God's going to prosper me, which is great, right? Or when the sun is shining, right? It's just God has good plans for me. That's good, right? It's also thrown around when life is bad, right? Trying to encourage somebody when you lost your job. God has a plan. When your health fails, God has good plans for me. just doesn't feel like it right now. Now, if that's your favorite verse, please don't freak out on me, okay? Just stick with me, all right? For the record, I'm not going to try and steal your favorite verse, okay? I believe there are times when God uses a single verse in a certain situation, and he gives it to you as a personal gift of encouragement. I believe my God's big enough to do that. I hope your God's big enough to do that too. I also believe that the context is so important to even greater understanding. So my goal is pretty simple. Instead of trying to steal your favorite verse from you, I'd like to make it more precious to you. I'd like for you to fully understand everything that was written around it so that you can look at it and say, now that, that speaks to me. I mean, the meaning of this precious promise, unfortunately, has been murdered for centuries, all right? I just Googled sermons on Jeremiah 29, 11. And I'll be honest with you, threw up a little bit in my mouth when I read some of the titles that went along with it, okay? Like this one, Jeremiah 29, 11. God's money back guarantee. Wow, right? Here was another one. Jeremiah 29, 11. There is no pain, just gain, gain, gain. What are you doing with that, right? So let me read it to you again, all right? For I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. People read that all by itself, and then here comes a list of incorrect assumptions about Jeremiah 29, 11. People read that. They don't know anything about the contents. It's like, this is God's plan for me. God's plan for me is that I will never be harmed, and I will always be prosperous, and God's plan is being fulfilled right now. So God, bring it on. We mistakenly think God's plan is all about me. God's plan is I'm never going to be harmed. So I never have to ride with a bike helmet. I never have to wear my seatbelt. As long as God around, there's, no, there's going to be no harm with me, which means there's going to be no pain at all. So I'm immune to pain because my life is always perfect. That's what God said. And God said I was going to be prosperous, so I'm going to be rich. So I'm going to go out this week and buy lottery tickets, and I'm going to call that tithing, right? And someday I'm going to find a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because I've got a promise. I've got a guaranteed promise. I've got a verse. I've got a hope. I've got a bright future because I'm special. Whoa, 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 right? Can we check the context? Can we check the context? This verse was not written to a group of people that were living on easy street. In fact, it was given to a prophet whose name was Jeremiah, and he had a reputation. Jeremiah is one of my favorite prophets because he was known as the weeping prophet. He cried a lot. It's my boy right there, right? And the weeping prophet was writing these words as superintended by the Spirit of God to a group of people who were living in exile and life was hard. This was written to a group of people who wanted to be home in Israel, but they were in Babylon, the home of their archenemy. 
was written to a group of leftover Israelites who were in captivity. This group of people had seen a lot of death and a lot of destruction and a lot of loss and pain. And they were living under the heavy hand of oppression. They were captives in a foreign land. And they were there because of years of poor choices that they had made individually and poor choices that they had made as a nation. And if you asked them, they would say, life is tough. Life is hard. Life is life, right? You know, we often think that when life is hard, that there are specific questions we're supposed to ask. Like, how do I escape out of this pain? How do I get out of here? What do I do? Well, what did I do wrong that God is somehow punishing me in this moment? Where's the trap door? Because God said I wouldn't be harmed and I would prosper. So what I want is a band-aid and I want God to show me the money. Because that's the promise he made, right? Before you go there, could we just stop and hear what God said before he got to Jeremiah 29, 11? Let's just back way up a little bit. Did God tell the people who were living this circumstance to get out and escape, just find any way out from underneath of this oppression? Actually not. In fact, it might surprise you earlier in the chapter, this is what God says to this group of people that were living through a really, really tough season. He said this, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Now, that's a theologically difficult sentence right there. Because who does it say actually took them to exile? God did. We'll unpack that over the series. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It's like, hmm. So you'd think that the people would just be like, let's get an escape clause and get out of here because this is where pain is. And instead God says, settle down. God says, stay and live and learn and put down roots and grow in, in the hard and in the difficult. I want you to stay and live and learn and grow. In fact, I want you to thrive in the midst of the fact that you're not home. You're in exile. And some of us are just like, I don't, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm looking for. I want to escape into God's goodness, right? Can I ask you a question? Could it be that God's goodness is available even when you're in pain? In fact, could I suggest that when you're in pain, you actually can be more aware of God's goodness? Could it be that, that in the middle of where you are, wherever you are in your life, that God's goodness is often right there in front of you? I mean, think, I think God is teaching us a truth here that's consistent throughout the whole Bible with every character and every situation. And the principle is this. Live the life you're in right now and live it well. Just live the life that you've got right now, regardless of the external situation. Live a life of faithfulness and then you will experience the goodness of God even if you're in exile. Seek the blessing of where God has you and find out whether or not there are blessings there that you did not even think were computable in the situation that you happen to be in in that particular moment. Let's keep going. God's got more to say before we get to the nice, tidy little promise. The Bible says, then God said, don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. 
Don't listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. So God warns this group of people that are living in exile, look, there's fakes out there. And the fakes are trying to feed you a line, so don't fall for it, right? Be discerning. There's no formula here. There's no magic sauce to try and get out of this situation. Some people are going to show up and they're going to say, oh, just do this and you'll get out. Just do that and then you're going to get out, but don't fall for it. I mean, we see this all the time, right? You turn on your television set and somebody says, if you send me a seed offering, I'll send you some genuine healing oil from the banks of the Nooksack River and you can watch God multiply it with a manifold blessing and I guarantee you a life of prosperity and ease. I hear that and go, what? Can you find a single person in Scripture that had a life of prosperity and ease? I can't. Not even Jesus, the Son of God. That's a clue, right? Now, some of you are thinking, well, what about, what about Solomon, right? He had prosperity. True. Read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you'll find out what's on the other side of all that prosperity. But before you do it, you might want to just... I don't know, go for a really long run or something because it's a bit of a downer. Okay, just saying, all right? But God teaches this principle, right? Over and over through Scripture. In the middle of tough times, don't be led astray by false promises. Promises that, that, that tell you there's a quick fix here. There's a loophole. There's an escape clause. God says, no, no. Live and thrive in the context that I've placed you. It may not be easy, but live and thrive there. Let's keep digging into the context, okay? This is where it gets really, really tough. It says, then God said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's where they were in exile, okay? So stop, all right? He just gave them a timeline. Anybody notice how long it is? 70 years. How long is the plan going to take? 70 years. That's about a whole lifetime if you're doing the math, okay? 70 years. And we're like, no, 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 no. No, fix it now. Get me out of here now. I want to escape right now. I want the hope in the future part right now. I want the prosperity and that no harm thing right this second. We, we've become so so unbelievably addicted to the speed of our own life. That's why I just preached the whole margin series, right? I mean, we send out a friend request and we get an immediate answer. I Skype somebody in Africa and they actually answer. I fire off an email to a friend in Europe and they text me back in a matter of seconds. And then God shows up and go, this is going to take about 70 years. And we were praying about this in the prayer room ahead of time. Isn't it interesting? We only count miracles if they happen like that. What about the ones that have taken decades as God has moved and helped and touched? I met a guy last week, 87 years coming to Jesus. Gave his heart to Christ, 87 years. You know who he blamed it on? His great-granddaughter. He said, and I quote, she prayed the hell out of me. <laughs> How long? 
70 years. We look at that and go, that's too long. I agree. <laughs> but look at what's waiting at the end of the 70 years. Okay, so now don't forget all the context, right? A group of exiles who got there because of their own decisions. And God honored their decision. And off they went, away from home. They're separated. They haven't got it all together. They have been rebellious against God. Now they're living in exile. And it's not easy. And it's not fun. And God has said, this is going to take a long time. We're going to work through this. But look at the unbelievable promise that's coming. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, which was home. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's God saying, while you're living your life, while you're doing what I told you to do, while you're changing the world around you by being faithful in exile, while you're transforming the world around you by holding on to a God, always understand He is holding on to you. That's the manifest presence of God that's available to everyone who calls on His name. It's a pretty simple principle, right? It might take a while, but God will keep His promise. I'll come to you. I will save you. I will rescue you. I will bring you out of exile into a glorious hope in a future. I didn't promise you instant prosperity. The answer, as much as you want it to be, is not a life of ease and a really nice stock market portfolio. That's not it. No, I promised ultimately to you, your hope and your future is not where you are, but where the salvation of God is. Do we understand this? The Bible says that God's faithfulness is new every single morning, every day, every single day. For how long for this group of people? 70 years. Somebody got a calculator? 70 times 365 and a quarter. That's a lot of numbers, isn't it? You know, when you read Scripture in context, you're captivated by its truth. I was captivated by the first 11 verses. I mean, it just got me when I understood who is God talking to? How, in what ways are they like me? In what ways are they not like me? In what ways has God been constant and faithful all the way through? What's this greater conversation he's having? Well, I wrote it this way in your outline. The captivating truth of Jeremiah 29, 11. Regardless of your placement, and I don't know what your placement is, regardless of your placement, live the lives that God has for you because in His timing, God will break our exile and save us. For some of you, the only reason you came tonight is because God wanted to whisper those words to you. I know. I know. He knows. Maybe that's, that was your gift. He knows. Regardless of your placement, live the lives that God has for you because in His timing, God will break our exile and save us. I mean, I just want you to see this, right? 
the hope in the future that God promises us, they're established in the stewardness and the faithfulness of how we handle this moment. I love Jeremiah 29, 11, but I'll tell you what, I love Jeremiah 29, 12 more. Because it just makes the lights go, oh, look at that. Listen to the hope in Jeremiah 29, 12. Then you will, remember, don't forget all the context, right? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Even though you're over here, when you seek me and find me, when you seek me with all of your heart, God does not play hide and seek. It's not his character. When you seek him, he responds in that moment. That's the obedience piece. And into that, God says, I've got a plan. I know. And it's not just to make life easy and simple. In fact, you know what really, really bums some people out when they do a Greek, or a, sorry, Hebrew word study of the little word uh, prosperity? It's actually the Hebrew word shalom. God's more interested in your peace than he is in your portfolio. I got one amen out of that one. Thought it was worth at least three. Let me say it again, right? God's more interested in your peace than your portfolio. Let's just understand that. I don't know how else we reconcile that, right? I don't know how you reconcile prosperity gospel with the fact that the Savior of the universe was homeless. I don't get how that goes together. But because we're aliens and strangers, we kind of know what it feels like to be homeless too. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not your home. You're not home. That's why it doesn't feel like it fits. And that's okay, because he knows. So what is God saying? He's saying, seek me in the exile. Seek me in the hard and the difficult. Don't just escape. Seek me, and I will deliver you. This is not a money-back guarantee. It's a promise that's echoed all the way through Scripture. Why can I say that confidently? Because it began all the way back in the beginning when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were perfect and they whispered mankind into being. And then they started having a conversation and God began to say, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then it was echoed in, I know the plans I have for you. And then it was echoed in, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he whispered again, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us for a while. And then he closed Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus, all the way through. All the way through. 
So the next time you look at your coffee cup or your poster on the wall, realize there's a whole lot before Jeremiah 29, 11, and a whole lot after it. And we all live in the shadow of the God who wrote the whole thing. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and thank you for your word. Lord, if nothing else comes out of this, I pray that people would hear your whisper and that they would open up their Bible and understand the beautiful conversation that you want to have. An extension of the conversation you had with a group of exiles all those thousands of years ago and now wanting to have it with us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who feels like an exile or is honest enough to admit that they have lived and chosen to be in exile. And I pray that they would hear, along with the context, the beautiful words. I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. And may we embrace that glorious and godly plan, not ours because it's not about us, it's about you. So Lord, thank you for your hope, thank you for a future, and thank you for the promise that one day we truly will be removed from our exile and be able to embrace the home, the perfect and beautiful home that you've created for us. May that truth press us deeper into holiness this week. In Jesus' precious name, and all God's people said, amen.